It is really a delight to be back with you. Um, I think I recognize most of you, but I'm Mary Maggard Hayes, and for 17 plus years I worked for the Bishop, Archbishop Duncan, um, helping congregations and clergy um, flourish. And one day, in the middle of that job, I got this crank call from England. Somebody said, uh, Archbishop wasn't in as usual, and um, somebody said, there's this Brit on the phone, and, and he wants a job. Do you think you could take it? So I did, and the rest is history. It was Alex, and there was a little history between then and now, but anyway, um, I've always had a warm spot for Fox Chapel, loving to come here and be with you um, and open the word. So um, glad to be here. We've been planning this a while, and it's like, you know, you say, oh, let's get together. Alex and I would see each other at various events. Let's, yeah, let's do this. And finally, we put it on our calendars. But what he didn't tell me was, you're guessing, right? He didn't tell me that the passage for today was going to be Daniel 8 until later. And I almost reneged. He said, well, you could back out, you know, but, um, and then I call, I was talking to a friend of mine complaining, a bishop, another bishop, and, um, he said, well, just preach on verse 27. And, and in the New International Version, it says, then I, Daniel, was worn out and I went to bed for three days. <laughs> so uh, I thought about that. And, and, but then he told me, well, at least you didn't get Revelation 17. That's what he's preaching on this week. You look it up later. I promise you, I did get the better deal. Um, so how about a pop quiz? Now, remember, this isn't a pop quiz if, on you. It's on Alex, okay? So wh- what do you know? What, I, I know this is, this is the eighth chapter, so you must know a few things about Daniel. What do, you, what do you know? Even if they're stupid, you know, little things that everybody knows, say them out. He's a dreamer, right? Good. What else? Come he interprets dreams, sometimes he even figures out what the dream is that he's supposed to interpret. Remember that one? What else? Even the wild and crazy things, because most of them are wild and crazy, right? He's very obedient, right. What else? Come on, some of the things you read in Bible school when you were a kid. He, he right, he got thrown into the lion's dead because some people were jealous of him and set him up to, to disobey the king, and the king didn't want to break you know, the king was saving face, so through, but he emerged unscathed, and then the people who set him up were eaten immediately. Um, what happened to his friends? Thrown into, remember, thrown into the fiery furnace, and, and, and there was a fourth figure kind of in there, and, but they come out, they don't even smell like fire. Kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? This time of year when the fireplaces start. Um, so, so Daniel is, um, has visions, has been faithful in a hostile environment. Um, he's in exile, as you know, from the promised land and from Jerusalem. I don't think we really grasp what that must have been like. Because remember, it wasn't just a political thing that moved him. It was also a theological, a spiritual thing, uh, kind of exile, because the people of God thought Jerusalem could never fall, that it was inviolate because it was God's city, right? I was, um, my husband and I were sitting with um, a couple of missionaries who'd served in Yemen 
um, a couple of years ago, before they were big in the news, and their daughter was there, and we, we were having lunch, and I asked some innocuous, you know, stupid question that you ask, well, do you miss it? Or maybe I said, did you love it? Or, you know, and, and the father just started to weep, just started to weep because of the destruction of Yemen, this country had come to love, and people who had begun to come from, um, turn to Christ. And so it was the people and the country that was beautiful and destroyed. So that's, I, I thought of that when I was thinking of Daniel, and that's even without the sort of theological, spiritual displacement that he faced. So that's, that's the context in which we see Daniel choosing God over and over again. You know, it's, it's not just business as usual and flourishing in the middle of an environment that shouldn't allow him to flourish, right? So now we come to chapter 8. And, you know, we thought the other ones were tricky. Well, this one, it's this outlandish, colorful vision um, Courtney read it so well. Uh, it's you know the superhero mu- movies have nothing on this. I don't know. You'd need a lot of special effects to make it work, wouldn't you? I mean, um, and it and we're told it's similar to the previous vision. So if you were here last week, keep that in mind. I wasn't, but and we're used to this wildness, and we assume Daniel's kind of used to this, right? By now, he's had enough of these things. Uh, it's another dream. It's another vision. So the first picture, right, is this ram with two horns. One is higher and comes later than the other, and it charges every direction, well, except east. West, north, south, it charges in every direction. It's a destroyer, utterly wrecking havoc wherever it goes. And, it, and, and everything, is, everything and everybody is hopeless in the face of it, right? It's just, un, you know, it's just disaster, no beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could provide rescue. I mean, this is the kind of movie that if I see the trailer for it, we're not going to that movie, okay? But, and then the next picture comes, and it gets better and worse at the same time. As I was considering this, uh, a male goat, a billy goat, comes from the west, and he goes over the whole earth and pulverizes the seemingly indestructible ram. So we go, yay, the ram is dead. But he becomes exceedingly great. Same, listen for that phrase because it repeats. We have this picture of destruction fueling its violence almost. It's almost like he's eating his destruction and that's giving him more energy to be more destructive, right? It's getting worse and worse. It's getting bigger and bigger. And then um, he has one horn, and those, that, that horn is broken, and then four little horns in the compass. It says the four winds. In the compass directions, the four horns are, are um, growing. And then quite a bit later, out of one of them, a little horn comes, and it grows exceedingly great. That word again, a repeated phrase. And it grows towards the glorious land, this land of longing. Right here, the longing and calling the promised land, Jerusalem, Judea, that. And uh, he's so great, he even gets into the host of heaven, and the stars are batted down, and you have some sense that this evil 
there is an evil force that's propelling his evil. That it isn't just, um, yeah, he destroys the stars, he attacks the heavenly powers, and desecrates the now restored worship in Jerusalem. Trampling everything, the people of God, everything that was understood to be true, truth and falsehood are switched places. And we hear this heavenly voice. How long? Now, if, if you're a reader of the scriptures, that voice is familiar. If you read the Psalms, I mean, I mean, half of the Psalms have that phrase in it. How long, O Lord, will you desert your people forever? How long? This is a repeated refrain. Whenever God seems distant, when evil seems to be overtaking either a personal life or God's people as a whole. And, uh, and we're given a specific time frame, 2,300 evenings and mornings. So that's about three years, because it's not, you know, it's half of 2,300. Believe me, it's three, a little over three years, okay? <laughs> I figured it out. Three years and two weeks, something like that, okay? So let me ask you, are you exhausted yet? I, I, I don't know. W- would you be? Would you be? It's a dream, but it's clearly more than a dream. Much more is going on. And uh, Daniel is. He's overwhelmed by this. And he, we're told he sought to understand it. You can hear his turmoil, even Daniel, who's um, no stranger to wild visions or, or, or wild activity of God. And the voice charges Gabriel, a heavenly being, um, he shows up later in the scriptures, as you know, to explain these visions refer to real earthly events in the future, but they also refer to the end. So that's part of what makes the vision appalling and complicated, that there's a, they're all, it's all in the future. Some of it is nearer future, concrete actions in history, and some of it has to do with the, the end writ large. And we're told that the ram with two horns refers to the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. One horn is bigger because the Persians kind of overtook the Medes, but they joined together, became a huge empire that blasted over the Babylonian empire. And then the conquerors are conquered, we're told. And the goat refers to the Greeks, a new empire that rises up and conquers the Persian Empire. And you know, some of you are nodding. You know your ancient history. Pretty much all of us are old enough that we had to study it. I'm like, well, no, I won't go there. Okay, so Alexander the Great takes over the whole known world. Never has there been an empire so big, so vast. And then he, he works hard to Hellenize, to Greekify the whole empire and, uh, and, and that's actually why the New Testament is written in Greek, is really because it becomes this lingua franca, even before Latin, that is across the whole known world. And so there's this huge swath of conquered, the Hellenization of civilization. And then Alexander dies young in his early 30s, and we're not sure if he was poisoned. Would make sense, kind of fit the pattern, but he might have died of typhoid or something. But in any case, he dies young enough, there's no heir. And so after a bunch of bickering, four generals, remember those four horns, those four generals split up the empire. And many, many years later, out of one of them, 
we're told, a king of bold face, a king marked by deceitful cunning, by cleverness, as well as by violent power. And we get this picture of this guy who's, who's attractive in a way, the deceitful coming, the twist truth, but people buy into it. You know, so there's this kind of manipulation and violence mixed that destroys God's people and even worse, um, desecrates the now restored temple that ha- and its worship and, and this language of desecration. Uh, and then Gabriel says, this is all true, but seal it up because it's for many days from now. And Daniel's response, are you exhausted yet? Daniel's response is he's overwhelmed. This is Daniel, remember. He's not easily overwhelmed. No stranger to visions or the power of God. We're meant to be overwhelmed. It's part of why we hear Daniel being overwhelmed. We're meant to read this and be overwhelmed by its vastness, by its horror, by its confusing trajectory. Ah. Why? Because it's big. It's big. And Daniel understands that history, uh, the future, these battles, they're much bigger than he had thought. They're not just battles of kingdoms. They're battles that, uh, that have a va- vast consequences and have a kind of eternal weight to them. It's much bigger than what he had seen and what we often see in our daily routines. We read the news. We watch the news. We see evil around us, but we don't grasp often its vastness. Um, And he's appalled. Well, he's appalled. It's so dark. But, uh, you know, you can almost taste the evil when you read it. It's so dark. And the evil inherent in this power that seems indestructible, unstoppable, Um, even though God wins, the evil is appalling. It's enervating, and it's confusing. And part of the reason it's confusing is this mix of time, um, of close, closer-in future and far-away ultimate future as we face the end. And so he goes to bed, and then he gets up and goes to work. And then he gets up and goes about the king's business. Can you imagine seeing all this? And then going back to work in the midst of the current power center that he's functioning in, knowing that it will end, and so will the thing that ends it end. So what do we see and learn from this vision? I mean, I've already clued you in as we've gone along a little bit. First of all, that it really happened. What Daniel saw did unfold. The Medes and Persians did conquer Babylon. The Greeks conquered the Persians and the rest of the known world. And the sanctuary was restored and then desecrated. All of that happened. Uh, And so we can trust that God's word has a kind of, I mean, this kind of rootedness in history is part of what gives us confidence about the wilder things that God says. There's a a rootedness in real things that really happened. I think, secondly, we're reminded that power is brutal. And 
evil is real. Uh, that, that, and that even though power is brutal, its very brutality bears the seeds of its destruction. We see that, right, over and over again. And you look at it at first and you think there is nothing that's going to stop this, but actually it turns in on itself or it's ripe for conquer. Excuse me, I keep doing that. Um, Each of these empires look invincible, and it must have felt that way to live in the middle of them, yes? Um, But they look never-ending, but they're not. They end. I mean, I was thinking of uh, Nazi Germany. Maybe you were when you heard this. You know, remember that? Uh, How, I mean, I don't remember it. Remember, remember. But um, when the Nazis came into country after country and they just gave in, you know, and they came in with their tanks and we watched the newsreels, right? And it seemed like they were unconquerable. And we can look back and say the Allies won and it was so great and of course we're better, but that was not guaranteed in the middle of it. I mean, some people, you know, said we got to capitulate. It's our only hope. That's part of what happened, isn't it? Because people were captivated by the violence and the and the strength and the power of that empire that it seemed inviolate. Inviolate, and uh, and. I mean, remember a few years ago with ISIS. Maybe you didn't feel this way, but the fact that their warfare was so different and they were making such strides, I really was thinking, we got to face the fact life is going to be different. And of course it is. I mean, terrorism is becoming, you know, a way of life in some ways. But remember, it looked like they were unstoppable for a while. And then they... They weren't. You know, they started losing. In fact, my husband has a little group of college kids, a program for leadership of college kids, and a group of them were took a summer and prayed around the edges of ISIS with missionaries they knew. And it was right about then that, that they stopped winning battles. Now, I'm not saying it was because of them, you know, but I think they were a part of what God was doing to shift history um, the inviolence, the, the violence bears the seeds of its own destruction. And in both cases, you know, we know the end of those stories, but it certainly didn't seem guaranteed in the middle of it. Ultimately, evil ends. And, and we're told in this passage that sometimes it ends cause just on its own, and sometimes it ends because God comes and bears down on it and, and changes it. Either way we're reminded that God is in control. And then Daniel goes back to work. Um, We're meant to learn that it's possible to live and work in a hostile, evil environment. That we're, we're able, we can serve God and his people and others faithfully, even in the midst of hostility. Yesterday, I was reading Psalm 94 just in the course of my reading. Listen to these verses. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. 
for justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Um, the, the psalmist says things like that over and over again in the midst. I mean, he wouldn't have to say that except that it's in the midst of these violent times when it looks like God is distant that the psalmist cries out and knows that God's word is true, that God is in control, and that God can allow him to flourish even in the middle of hostile, in a hostile environment. So, so why do you think this is in here, this weird vision? Um, what are, how are we meant to respond to this wild and crazy thing about a history that has happened and not happened? I, you know, I think partly because we're myopic, right? We are, we, we are focused on our little world, even if our little world is pretty big, right? We're very myopic. And these visions from God here and in other places are meant to say, take us by the chin and say, look up, look out. What I'm up to, Mary, is much bigger than anything you can imagine. So I'm going to give you these wild and crazy pictures so that you can know, and that's part of why they're incomprehensible. It's not that God's trying to confuse us, but God's trying to say, hey, it's bigger than comprehension. It's bigger. What I'm up to is much bigger, even if my world is pretty big. And, um, and even our faith, I mean, it's true that God is the God of individuals, that God is the God of me. But God is also God of the universe and of nations and of powers that are at work. And he is much bigger. He's the God of history, of nations, of the cosmos. And when we follow him, we're participating in something much bigger than the little world we're a part of, even if our little world is bigger than many. Um, we're a part of something ungraspably big. Second, I think this passage is meant to remind us, as most of Scripture does, that evil is real. Evil is real, it's big, it's exhausting, but it ultimately loses, however much it seems to be winning. And we see this in this vision, both its immensity, its seeming indestructibility, and also its final destruction. And we're meant to live in that kind of tension in the midst of the evil we face, that it's big, it's real, our experience of evil is real. We're not crazy. If we don't notice it, we're, we're not looking, it's there. I love that about the Christian faith. It never pretends that everything's fine, it's just in our imaginations. E- evil is real, but it's not the end of the story. And thirdly, I think um, this passage is meant to teach us that we can live godly lives that flourish even in evil times and in evil contexts. Even in the midst of a context that's ruled by evil and destruction, we can go back to work, even if we've been flattened by our knowledge of stuff that's much bigger, by what we see and perceive. You know, Daniel was a cog, a pretty big cog in that day, uh, but he was a cog, a government cog. And, and, you know, there were powers around him and over him, and he functioned um, 
in that environment as just a cog, you know? But God used him, didn't he? Over and over. And if you've paid attention through the whole series, you see this happening over and over. He, God uses him to bring good in evil times, to bring light into darkness, to allow king, evil kings to see the power of God and to turn however slightly towards them. I mean, it's a kind of amazing. Uh, God would love to do the same with us, really, to use us, whatever evil context we're in, to live a godly life that brings other people closer to the Lord, however little in however little ways, to uh, nudge them and to demonstrate the fruitfulness of a life lived close to God. I mean, we're called to live godly lives in hostile times and places. It's not just something Daniel did. And same with Peter. Peter, too, was called in the middle of a hostile environment, the Roman Empire, and we're told that he recognized Jesus and his, as the Son of God and this ex, exquisite voice of recognition of what God was like. And then he went on to bring lots of others, but of course he died. You know, he lived in a hostile, murderous environment, and yet part of why we're here is because of his recognition of the power of God and his seeking, however, not always perfectly, to live a faithful life in the midst of a hostile environment. Um, May we do the same. May we recognize the power of God. May we recognize and not be flattened by the immensity of evil and know that its end is sure. And may we live faithfully in the midst of whatever context God puts us so that others might flourish and God's name might be better known. Will you pray with me? Thank you, God, for the mighty ways that you used Daniel to show your might and to um, call us along with him to faithful lives. Would you similarly use us in whatever environment you place us to bring light in darkness, to bring good out of evil? In Christ's name, amen.